The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in August 2008. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we're joined by David Stone, the Broadway producer. Some of the shows that he has produced over the last several decades include Three Days of Rain, the 25th Annual Putnam County Spelling Bee, the recent revival of Man of La Mancha, the Vagina Monologues, revival of The Diary of Anne Frank, and of course, Wicked. Welcome, David. Thank you. Wicked is a show that every one of our listeners is certainly familiar with. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about that to begin with, since that's still running, and then we'll sure. get back to some of the other shows. How did you become involved in Wicked? Well, uh, Mark Platt, who uh, was the president of production of Universal Pictures, uh, was approached by Stephen Schwartz, uh, to, to, and Stephen said, you know, this really ought to be a musical. I know you've been working on it as a, a film. Uh, but I think you should consider this. And Mark is someone I had met uh, when I was doing Anne Frank, and he was running the studio, and um, uh, he wanted to, to explore doing a film of Anne Frank. Stephen was someone who's my friend for many years. So they both started to work on it and said, as soon as we have a first draft, you're going you're gonna to get involved. And I said, absolutely. So I came to the reading uh, the first time they they did it at Universal. Um, Which was how long ago was it? Was January 2001. Mm-hmm. They had been working on it quietly with Winnie Holzman for about two and a half years before that. And I loved it. Um, actually, it was much more than I expected. I thought it would be fun and sort of Wizard of Oz backstory. And it, it ended up being incredibly moving and political and all these things. And um, afterwards, we went back to Mark's bungalow on the Universal lot. He was a producer at that point on the lot, not a, a not an executive. And uh, Winnie and, and uh, uh, Stephen Schwartz and, and Mark turned to me and said, okay, well, now what do we do? I said, well, now we get a director and we do budgets and, you know, we, we move it forward. And, and it was, you know, we, we then really dove right in after they finished the writing process. So um, it's been more than I could have expected, of course. But what, what did you expect at that point? Did I, you have any expectations? I, I, knew it would, I knew it would appeal to people. Uh-huh. I, you can't. You know, imagine this sort of success in your wildest dreams. But I did understand the power of it, even in a in a room with you know music stands and scripts, um, without seeing you know orchestrations or scenery or anything. I did understand that, but but the level of it, no idea. Was it a show that you said you first heard it in two thousand one? If I remember correctly, it debuted on Broadway 2003. in two thousand three, and there was the tryout in San Francisco uh, earlier that year. How much was this a show that was extensively workshopped? Was there a lot of change happening to it first coming up to San Francisco? We know there were changes in San Francisco, but yeah. let's let's go to there first. Sure. How much was was set, and how much had to be really reworked? Well, um, a lot. Um, you know, it's funny. We're we're actually what, working. What are the cut moments from Wicked? <laughs> well, I mean, we're doing for the fifth anniversary. We're doing a benefit. I'll give a little plug. Uh, it's uh, October twenty seventh, and it's called. The Yellow Brick Road Not Taken. And what we're doing is performing with an all-star cast the things that no one ever saw. The two songs – it's going to be the first act. It's 90 minutes. And the two songs everyone will know in it are popular and define gravity. And everything else are scenes and characters and songs that none of you have ever seen that were in all these different readings. Um, And Stephen and Winnie are having a ball doing it, remembering, you know, songs like Easy as Winky Wine and – um, making good and just all, so we did we never did a workshop a staged workshop uh, we did probably eight 
readings just for to hear the material, and then they would Stephen Winnie would go back and make uh, extensive changes. And you know, Joe Mantello, the director, when he came in, he had a lot to say about the structure, and they, he was a great dramaturg for them, and really was was very helpful as a new new eye to that process. And was Joe somebody you brought in because you'd worked with Joe previously? A bunch of times. Um, we had talked about a couple of people, but Joe was someone that I had suggested to Mark and Stephen. Uh, Mark hadn't known him. Stephen knew him. Stephen and Joe actually were on the Jonathan Larson uh, Award uh, Committee um, and knew each other from that. Uh, Joe, I had done um, a big flop called What's Wrong With This Picture, which was my first Broadway show and his. Uh, closed in a week, and then we did the Santa Land Diaries, and then and then the Vagina Monologues, and and we're good friends, so um, it seemed like a, a good match. But he was not, as I recall at that point, considered a musical director. He wasn't at, at all. all. Wasn't at all. In fact, when he got the job, he had never directed a musical. In between getting the job and directing it, he did uh, a Man of No Importance at Lincoln Center in the Off Broadway uh, Mitzi Newhouse, and. Learned some about uh, something about directing a musical, but nothing like directing a, a big musical. But he had all the right instincts. The most important thing, I think, is storytelling, which he's great at, and and he has great taste. So he knows what something is right or wrong. What he, you know, he did learn a lot about sort of just the process of of directing a musical in between San Francisco and New York. His his work was very, I think, different in New York. As you talk about process, we, we went quickly past the fact that Mark Platt was involved early mm-hmm. in terms of turning it into a stage piece, but then turned to you, the experienced stage producer, to, to help bring it to fruition. His background really was film. Well, he started in the theater. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we we both went to Penn, actually. So did you, Howard. I think you – no, you were in between me and Mark. He's a little older than you. Um, and uh, – uh, he st- started off working for Liz McCann and Nell Nugent and then was um, uh, an in-house director of business, business affairs attorney for ICM and Sam Cohn and all those big um, clients that they had at the time before moving to Hollywood. And his goal had always been to get back to the theater. But he didn't know sort of the mechanics of getting a show on. And uh, and we've been – you know, we've had a, a great partnership. And, and in fact, not only did – Wicked together, but then did Three Days of Rain with with Joe directing and Julia Roberts. But did you divvy up some of the responsibilities? How how who had hands on what? Well, I think I like to say that Mark really, with a little bit of help from me, um, created Wicked and 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 was there. I mean, he has index cards. They literally storyboarded you know the whole show. And was very involved in the design. And I was a part of some of that and casting and all of that. But if he created Wicked, I think I created the business of Wicked and um, and obviously run every major decision by him. I want him to be a part of that. And, and even now, we, we talk all the time, but the running of the show is, you know, is, is, is what I'm doing. Well, well, tell us a little bit about that Yellow Brick Road from the early stage mm-hmm. readings to getting to the Gershwin Theater mm-hmm. on Broadway. What was that road? How did you go down those two years or so of uh, getting from the early stages to what we now know? Well, it was, um, as I said, it was a lot of uh, of readings. And, you know, Kristen had already uh, was at that very first reading, so the part was really written for her. Adina, um, we saw at an audition, um, and uh, the five of us, Stephen, uh, Winnie Holtzman, Joe, Mark, and I really did know as soon as she walked in that this was this was the one we had seen her in, in Rent, but that she really 
she was this character. Um, and once we had them, I think Stephen also started tailoring music for her. Um, but the 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 script changed drastically. We originally were going to do a nonprofit uh, production, uh, as some shows do at La Jolla or the Old Globe. We were going to do it at Seattle Rep. And Joe made the point um, that if we did if we did that, it wouldn't we wouldn't be able to physically fit all the scenery and costumes that we might ultimately want on that stage. And so we would never really know if a scene wasn't working or a song wasn't working because the scene or the song wasn't working or if it was because we hadn't fully created a a, a complete world of Oz. So we wouldn't know what the problem really was. And he was right. So we said, okay, well, then we will do a full production. And then Stephen Schwartz said, okay, well, um, we can't just let the train leave the station and not be able to get off as many, you know, these out-of-town tryouts. Once you start, it just hurdles its way into Broadway. And he said, what if we could stop and reassess? And so I said, well, you know, we could build in a few months off. It's very expensive. It was an extra million and a half dollars to shut the show down, which we knew a year and a half before we were doing it, that we were going to do San Francisco and have a break. And we ended up using every second, as you always do, you you use every possible moment that you have. Uh, We recast uh, principal roles. We rewrote a lot, new new songs, new choreography, lots of new design. And mostly, I think, we realized in San Francisco that while Elphaba um, was very strong, a very strong character when she was singing, that when she was speaking, she was less so. And um, Glinda was sort of running away with the show. Uh, and they needed to have a better balance. And that was the biggest thing we did that summer was really make Elphaba an active character instead of just reactive. Was it because of the way the role was written there wasn't enough for Adina to do? It was originally written where, you know, things, you know, she reacted to things happening Mm -hmm. to her instead of her being an activist and and pushing and and being the catalyst for action. And so that's a lot of what we we did that summer. And, And... and it worked because uh, Adina won the Tony Award. Now, a million and a half dollars to take a, a break, is that because you had to keep paying people during that time? We had to or? pay certain people, uh, not all, but the musicians, for example. Ah. Um, we had to put things in storage. We had to I, – I, I, it's now been enough years, I don't remember, but it came to a, a lot of money. And uh, – uh, but we decided it was it was money well spent. And, you know, at that point, if, it, if it's going to be – Twelve and a half million or fourteen million dollars, which is what it ultimately was. You say something of this size is either going to work or it's not going to work. There's not a lot of in between with these large shows. You can't sort of build them. They either they have a life of their own, and the audience wants to see them. And relatively, a million and a half dollars just makes you recoup a, a month or a month and a half later. In hindsight, being twenty twenty, obviously, it was a good decision. It, it was. <laughs> well, it, it, it if. It wasn't even 22. If we had I, – I knew as soon as we were in San Francisco that if we were rushing toward Broadway, it would have been – it would have been more tense than it was. And it was very tense um, because we understood that this was sort of actually really happening. And you know, when you're 90 percent there, you don't want to screw up the rest. And so we put even more pressure on ourselves to to get the rest of the way there. And um, you know, it, it was it was a hard time with the, the – core team. From how you got to Broadway, we know of the great success. 
you now have sit-down companies in the U.S., you have a national tour in the U.S., you have companies in London, Australia, I can't even keep Germany track Germany and that. Japan. So there are eight right now. How do you maintain quality control on it, those productions? It is. It is – that's what I do all day. Not that I d do all of it. In fact, you know, part of my day is – is a lot of, of selling tickets in Chicago and Australia and making sure the route of the tour works. But we have and it's and it's expensive and well worth it. We have in addition to Joe, who is very aware still of everything that goes on in every company, um, we have Lisa Laguio, our associate director, who actually just directed the production in Australia because Joe uh, couldn't go. Um, and and another assistant director, we have Wayne Salento and to associate choreographers. So we really have a team that goes around. They just make circuits all around and just check in all the time. Well, how often do you and Joe Mantello revisit, say, the New York production or the others to actually see that it's still what you want? Well, it's, it's, it's not just me. It's Mark as well. You know, I, I actually look at, at Mark's eye with this sort of thing. Uh, and when I will go, for example, to London, I'll go four times a year and I'll look at the show. Um, Joe goes to London twice a year. We have a resident director there. But I also make sure that Mark goes once or twice a year. Now that he's shooting a movie in London, he'll probably go a lot in the next couple of months. He's shooting uh, the movie of Nine. Um, but I'll, part of my reasons for going are to both know what's going on on stage. But I do leave some of that to, to Joe and Lisa and everyone else. Um, but I also just have to go to make sure that everything's going okay backstage with the presenters on the tour, you know, all of that. Often when American musicals travel... There are sometimes are cultural references that don't always play. Mm -hmm. We in America, I don't think you can have grown up in the past 40 years in America without knowing The Wizard of Oz mm -hmm. from the time you were a child because of the television broadcasts. Have there had to be any adjustments yeah. in the story for other countries? Absolutely. You know, it was very interesting because in America, I think we're sort of blinded by our love of the Wizard of Oz and it's it's our American mythology and so a lot of our audiences here sort of just look at it as oh that's how the Scarecrow became the Scarecrow Annie Lennox came backstage and I guess she had seen it maybe as a kid uh, in, in, in Scotland and um, and she said boy you're really taking on the Bush administration aren't you and I said it's interesting yeah, I said yes that is part of what it's about <laughs> but because and her daughter was uh, 12 and she understood the Wizard of Ozness of it all from the DVD, but when they weren't just into the Wizard of Oz, they actually saw all kinds of other things. And when we've and and the audiences in London actually get the politics much more in Germany and Japan, where they don't really know the Wizard of Oz much at all. They're much more involved in the story of these women and friendship and sacrifice and how governments decide what's good or what's wicked based on how people look. And in Japan, for example, um, not only did they not really know the Wizard of Oz, but we had to add a couple of lines of explanation at the beginning of why a man would be of straw. Um, they, why a scarecrow? Why would a man be of tin? Um, because these were, of course, references to, you know, we, we're, we're assuming in a way that people know uh, things. And, and then when we realize, well, of course, why, why would he be made of tin? And we had to sort of explain a little to people who don't know. But but I would say 99.9% .9 of the audiences here know, but we've had to do work in other countries. It's interesting that you say that the British audiences seem to get the politics more than the American audiences. Well, mm -hmm. Why do you think that is? Because um, I think everyone across the world is, is affected by our 
administration and, and our, our politics and, and um, looks at American musicals, uh, they, 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 look, they look at our work differently than, than, than we do. And I, I, I do think that, you know, because we have these feelings about The Wizard of Oz, and they're, and they're, they're valuable, our responses to it here in this country, but they are not, they're, they're, they're not as layered, perhaps, as, as in other places. Well, let's go back to how you got your start. We're talking sure. about this big behemoth, but uh, you said to us before we got on the air that your love of theater in some ways really started at summer camp. It did. I went to uh, a camp called uh, French Woods, which um, was not all the kids, but probably two-thirds of the kids did either uh, theater or music or dance, and now it's a very large camp, but at the time it wasn't. But a lot of the kids I, I went to camp with um, – are, I still work with in the business. They're composers and orchestrators and actors and stage managers, and um, it's been great. And I went there originally. I started when I was seven uh, because my um, my aunt and uncle were the head counselors there. So I, I went because they could take care of me, and I, I my first summer I played Wilbur in Charlotte's Web when I was seven. <laughs> Had you had any exposure to theater itself before that? Before yeah, my, my, my parents loved it, but uh-huh. they weren't in it. Um, so... I think I – well, I mean I, the great story I think that my mother loves is that her favorite show was Man of La Mancha and she'd seen it like six times. And for my fifth birthday, she took me to see it and I sat in the Martin Beck Theater and saw it with her. And then I produced Man of La Mancha at the Martin Beck Theater very much for her. And um, uh, so – Some some years later. A few years later <laughs> after I was five. Right. Um, but yeah, so I, I went to some shows but it, it was really – Starting at this camp, and and then they, you know, then I wanted to go all the time, and I would come in uh, to the city on the weekends for acting school and going to a matinee of Sweeney Todd when I was, you know, twelve or thirteen, which was kind of crazy, I guess. And then you went to Penn, uh, to but not just... a theater school, not Penn. No, I mean, I, Penn has a great extracurricular theater uh, activity, but not not a real great program. But actually, that's the best way to learn is just by doing, which we all did. But had you gone to school already feeling you were going to be in theater? No. In fact, I deliberately didn't want to. Um, I I had decided I was pretty much done with acting. I had mostly been in shows at this camp. I directed a little bit. Um, you know, most 15-year-olds don't produce, so uh, <laughs> but I was acting and directing. And I was going to go to Northwestern and go the theater route. And I, I, I said, you know, this is not uh, this is too scary a profession, and I want to get away from this. So I majored in communications and thought I would do advertising or television or film. And then the summer in between my junior, my sophomore and junior year, I worked at Atlantic Records here in Manhattan, and I went to see Lily Tomlin's um, Search for Science of Intelligent Life in the Universe. And I said, okay, well, I can't get away from this. This is what I have to do because it was amazing and, and life-changing. And, and then I just got back on the path and decided, well, no, I won't act, but I'll, I'll, I'll go into this part. So when you got out of Penn, then what did you do professionally for your, your, your early career? Well, I was in, still at Penn in, this, in between junior and senior year. I was an intern at Jujamson Theaters. Uh, Which is was, one of the major yeah, producers here in New York. Yeah, one of the three theater, theater owners. owners yeah. And it was actually the summer that um, uh, the previous president was, was let go and Rocco Landisman came in. So I, I was there when, when Rocco came in, and he's become, of course, an important part of this business. Uh, to say the least, and um, and then when I was graduating, they didn't really have anything 
for me then. So they introduced me to a few people. I got some job offers at uh, uh, Manhattan Theater Club and what was then called Pace, which is now Broadway across America, um, and Barry and Fran Weisler. And so I started working uh, for Barry and Fran first for the first six months as the assistant to the president of um, their booking company. And then after six months, I started working with Fran uh, Weisler on on her side of things, which was uh, casting and new projects and press. And then I went to law school at Columbia for a day and a half. And then <laughs> I uh, came back and worked for Barry for, for two more years on his side, which was management and finance and legal and you know and advertising and all those those things. So I, I got to learn both sides of it. Is this when Barry and Friend were doing their, their, their school shows in New no, Jersey or no, is this, this after is that? much after, after they that, yeah. they had already won their first Tony and had done Zorba. I was there uh, when we opened Gypsy with Tyne Daly and Fiddler on the Roof with Topol and Cat on a Hot Roof with Kathleen Turner and um, uh, and that was that was the time I was there. And then when I was about twenty five I said, you know, I, I think I want to do this on my own which you know, sounds insane now, um, and it was uh, the money that my grandfather had left me to go to law school. I said to my mom, "Can I have it and try to produce?" And she foolishly said, "Or not, maybe." Said yes, and so I lived on that for a year and a half. And just as the money had run out, m- you know, my first show opened, and so well, it worked out. Let's talk about how did you come up with your first show? I was visiting my father and my stepmother in uh, in Miami, and. My stepmother and I went to see um, a show at Coconut Grove Playhouse, not thinking anything about it, just, oh, that looks fun, and I loved it. And it was a one-woman show uh, called Family Secrets. A woman named Sherry Glazer played um, five characters in a Jewish family, a mother, a father, two daughters, and a grandmother. And so I I said I wanted to do it, and it it was about uh, a year, a little over a year, to get it to, to New York. Um, and figure out how to do, to get a theater to raise money. I met Amy Niederlander, um, who's obviously in the Niederlander family, another theater owning uh, chain, and she was my partner on this. And we opened. And you know, had the first one not worked, I wouldn't have been here. And I, I, I mean, you know, now I look back and and think what an incredible risk to 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 try something like that with no backup plan. Um, but but it did work. How much did you have to raise for that first show? That was $300,000. That's it. And we recouped in like 12 weeks. And it played about a year and a half in New York, got even better reviews than we could have hoped for, really great reviews, and then toured for about six months. Um, so, you know, I didn't get rich from it, but it 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 set me for, uh, you know, a couple of years. And then you said, let's, the next one's Broadway? It wasn't, it's not that it, we intended it to be Broadway. It's that it, it, it once we got, uh, Donald Margulies had just written Sight Unseen, so he was uh, uh, exciting then. And um, uh, Joe Mantello had just been as an actor in Angels in America and was, had directed a little at Circle Rep. Um, when we got Faith Prince, who had just won the Tony, just won the Tony for Guys and Dolls, we said, "Well, you know, this should be Broadway." And I didn't know enough to realize how scary that was. And um, and we, you know, we did a, a, a terrible production of a, of a play that I really like. Um, and uh, and it just we just botched it and but then Joe had before we started rehearsal for what's wrong with this picture th- this this play that's on the wall of Joe Allen uh, Joe had just done um, Love Valor Compassion he directed at Manhattan Theater Club and so he did that at MTC 
we did this and it opened and closed in a week. And then he went and moved Love, Valor to Broadway and won a Tony. <laughs> As a young producer, I mean, What's Wrong With This Picture ran from the time it opened a week. Mm -hmm. What was the experience for you in terms of in terms of how you dealt with, you'd had this great success with your first off-Broadway show, but then you, you, you hit a wall with this problematic show. Yeah, and I think, well, the morning the reviews came out, I got phone calls from Joel Gray, the people I had known over the years with Barry and Fran or whatever, but Joel Gray, um, Arthur Lawrence, James Lapine, and uh, Jimmy Niederlander, all people, by the way, that I've, I've worked with since. Um, and they all said, okay, now you're a producer. It's easy to have... Uh, you know, a hit, as Jimmy said, it's easy to have a hit, it's easy to have a flop. Anyone can do that. The hardest thing is to have a hit after you have a flop, and that's what you have to do. And and I did understand, you know, I, I recently was talking to my mother, and she was telling me how devastated she was during that time. She was so sad for me, and I, I understood that, no, it, it was okay. This is what happens. You have hits, you have flops, that's the name of the game. And it wasn't fun, but... Uh, but it was part of how the game worked. I, I did retreat a little and maybe thought, okay, don't do Broadway again next and went back to off-Broadway. Well, you intellectually understood that. How about emotionally? I did emotionally. I did. I the, wasn't devastated. And the good news is that Family Secrets was still running in New York. We were The tour was about to start. So I had a lot still to do. So I wasn't just wallowing in it. Have you taken what's wrong with this picture to off-Broadway rather than to Broadway? Do you think it would have been a different outcome? I don't know because we just would did, a, we a, did bad a bad production. <laughs> it's not a bad show. We did a bad production, bad production. of it. Well, We'd and strangely enough, I worked on the original off-Broadway production of What's Wrong With This Picture at the Manhattan Theater Club exactly. in 1985. And it was an all but invisible flop because it was never even opened to the press. Right. So it's it's an interesting show that's had a problematic history. It has. It has. In a very appropriate time. But Donald's come out okay, and <laughs> he, so have you. And so is Joe. And you know what's funny is that on this flop, I, I developed a, a relationship with a director who, you know, he could have blamed me. I could have blamed him. We didn't. And we've gone on to, you know, some nice success together. So well, you, good things come out of bad. Well, you fell off the horse. You got back on. What did you do next to recoup, to, 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 uh, to regain yourself? Well, we, we had to do the tour of, of Family Secrets. But then it took me a while to figure out what to do next. And it's funny because the next thing actually was about exactly that. Um, it was a, a, a off-Broadway play started at Manhattan Theater Club called Full Gallop about Deanna Vreeland, who in fact had, you know, just been fired and had to rise up again. So it was probably uh, what I had been feeling at the time. Um, but and th that and the Santaland Diaries, which um, was something that Joe and I had gotten David Sedaris to let us do on stage, happened at the same time uh, in fall of 96. And so having, you know, two shows again off-Broadway and successful was, was made me feel a lot better. In that period, at least according to the internet Broadway database and the off-Broadway databases, you were both general managing and producing these shows? Yeah, I went because uh, I had learned a lot of, of how to do that, uh, to general manage uh, from from Barry. And so I wasn't able to do that on my first couple of shows. But, you know, for, for off-Broadway shows at that time, I thought, okay, uh, Nancy Gibbs, who had been a company manager and was ready to general manage, um, and I did uh, Santa Land Diaries and Full Gallop and general manage those. Didn't feel I was capable of general managing the next thing, which Amy and I, Amy Niederlander and I did um, the Diary of Anne Frank on Broadway. So no, I wasn't going to general manage on Broadway. But then over the next number of years, I not only general managed the off-Broadway shows that we did, 
with Nancy and eventually Nina Essman came back, um, vagina monologues and fully committed and, and other things. But we started general managing our own Broadway shows and in fact other people's Broadway shows. With, with wicked success, I, I I stopped general managing. Just so we understand terminology, what is a general manager versus a producer? What, what are the responsibilities? A general manager, well, a, a producer is ultimately the CEO. They're responsible for, uh, well, for everything, for, 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 for choosing the material, raising the money, getting a theater, um, uh, casting, all creative decisions, uh, just everything, selling the tickets, everything. Um, th- they hire a general manager um, to deal with the union contracts, to literally make all the deals for the actors, the designers, to do payroll, to you know all of the the nuts and bolts of getting on the day to day, the day to day. But but a, a, a producer, I think, is also doing the day to day as well, just a different day to day. When you went to do the Diary of Anne Frank. Mm-hmm. This was certainly, in some circles, a revered piece, Mm -hmm. both the original diary itself and then the stage adaptation from the 50s. You went and looked at it in a different way. You weren't just going to take the old script. Yeah. um, Right. uh, There had been, um, I guess, a review in the the, uh, Times book review about the unedited diaries. Um, And it was fascinating because all of this stuff that that Otto Frank had not allowed to be public before um, was now available. And I said to Amy Niederlander, well, what if we rewrote the play to incorporate all this new material? And so it was about a year of of asking uh, to have the rights. I had approached James Lapine, who I knew from uh, Barry and Fran's office because I worked on falsettos there as well. And he wanted to do it. Um, he didn't want to do the the rewrite, uh, rewriting of the, of the play, but he had an idea of who should do it. We had Natalie Portman, and yet we still um, didn't immediately get the rights because there was another group who had Daisy Egan and Susan Shulman to direct and didn't want to change one word. And our argument was you can't in this day and age do the play from the 50s and, and basically say, in spite of everything, I still believe that people are really good at heart. Uh, you, you just can't. I mean, we know too much about the camps and, and the Holocaust and everything. And so we, 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 I don't, there's barely a line in the original version, which is still done around the country, but there's barely a line in our version that, that, that made it in. And in terms of the rights, because you, you talk about getting the rights, you, did you have the issue both of the Frank estate? Mm-hmm. I don't know if Otto Frank was still alive at that point. No. Um, but you also then had the Goodrich and Hackett estate, who had done the original version. I presume had some interestingly control. all represented by the same person, huh. who was Flora Roberts. Um, and she, because Flora uh, represented the Hacketts and the Frank estate, she put us together with with Anne's cousin, who was surviving, and he he agreed with this idea and thought it was a great idea. And since the Hackett's were no longer with us and actually didn't have heirs, their the dramatist guild of all um, organizations was the heir to the Hackett's estate. Flora basically was able to make the decision, and because of James, ultimately, um, we prevailed because her relationship with James Lapine was so close because she also represented Stephen Sondheim. So. Um, she just uh, did. She trust uh, that Amy and I were young producers. We're going to take care of this, you know, seminal work from uh, mid-century. Um, I don't know, but she certainly trusted trusted James. 
And then before the show opened, there was some controversy about a piece written in The New Yorker? There sure was. Um, Cynthia Ozick wrote a 14-page screed, really, um, and won an, uh, an, a, a National Magazine Award uh, for it, which amazed me, uh, in which she uh, accused everyone uh, uh, that ever came near the diary of, of whitewashing and boulderizing and, 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 and selling out uh, and Frank, everyone from the communists to Lillian Hellman to Otto Frank himself, um, and said that we better, we better uh, make this m- more Jewish. A- and of course, we already had, and we were in rehearsal with the new script. And you know, she was called to task a little. Frank Rich wrote uh, a, a, an op-ed piece in the Times saying. You know, basically, why don't you wait to see it before you start telling everyone what they should and shouldn't do? Because, of course, we had done everything she suggested and then some. And, and if anything, made it a little almost too brutal at the end. The people, you know, it was, it was almost too much, uh, our ending, not, not, not the happy ending from the 50s. So she wrote it with no knowledge, really, of what you were doing. What no. was the reaction then, both with her but in general, after the show opened? Did you um, get a nice card from her? <laughs> no, she was happy. She got an award. Um, but I think, you know, it was it was it it was good for us in that it, it was you know national news. Um, but we what it taught me, and it, it it came out later on the vagina monologues, is that if there's going to be controversy, I don't want to be reacting to controversy. I want to be you know creating it or in front of it somehow. And it was a very uncomfortable uh, position to to be, you know. Having people say, "Well, what about this?" and you know, she said, and and you know, no, she never apologized to say the least. But we, you know, but but I think the press, when they did see it, sort of took our side a little and said, "Yeah, okay, it's exact, it's right, that's correct, they did it right." Well, we've mentioned the vagina monologue several times now. Mm-hmm. I know you're very proud of that show. Events mm-hmm. uh, are writing it, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us how that whole thing began, how the whole project started, how you got involved. Well, I had seen. The show, uh, Eve did a 45-minute sort of reading of it at a, a place called Here downtown, two performances in 1996. And um, uh, I, I happened to be at the first time she ever did it, did it there, and I loved it. So she did it the next year in fall of 97 for a six-week run at Here, won an OB for it, and I brought Amy Niederlander because we were partnering on everything then. And Amy turned to me at some point. Eve said vaginal ejaculation, and Amy turned to me and said, "I I have two small children. I I, I can't I can't do this with you." So um, I said, "I understand," and we were doing everything together. But about eight months later, Amy moved up to Connecticut to be a full time mom, and and I called my lawyer, who was also Eve's lawyer, who was also Stephen Schwartz's lawyer. So it worked <laughs> out very well. Um, but I I said, you know, can I talk to Eve about this? And I think that. Eve had just done this benefit at uh, the Hammerstein Ballroom with all these celebrities, a one-night benefit, the beginning of this organization, V-Day, that she's founded. And I wasn't at it, but everyone else was, and everyone wanted to talk to her about doing the vagina monologues with stars. And because I wasn't there, because I had seen it twice with her, I only wanted to talk to her about doing it with her, which I think she liked, um, Mm -hmm. which is why I got the rights. And eventually, after it opened... um, and it was selling out, and you know she couldn't do more than four or five months uh, for, because of other commitments. Then she and I sat down and brought Joe in because Joe had worked with her a little on on her uh, doing it, and said, "Well, what if we did it with three women at the same time and had these groups?" And 
uh, come in and, and rotate and raise money for charity. And, um, and, and it worked, to say the least. At one point, there were seven companies around North America at the same time. It's still the thing, even with Wicked Success, which is, you know, is wonderful and, and I'm very proud of it, but it's still the thing I think that most defines what I've done because it, it was controversial and it was political and it, in, in its own way, you know, changed the world a little bit. And also very intelligent. Yeah. And something that a lot of people, women especially, could relate to. Yeah, but I, you know, Charles Isherwood said recently that it is the most important piece of political theater of the last 20 years. And I, I, I really, I like that. That made me happy. You'd said earlier, if there's going to be controversy, you want to be creating it, mm-hmm. not reacting to it. Mm-hmm. Certainly, as you said, the show had been done. You know, newspapers had debated over mm-hmm. whether to print the title, at least here in New York, yeah, but, uh, not nationally. But how much were you stoking the uh, the well, fires uh, quite, of controversy? Quite a lot. I mean, you know, I remember as we were opening off-Broadway in New York. Well, first, there was a CNN piece as we were opening. It was an eight-minute piece about Eve, and it did not say the word once. Not once. I, I don't know. They called it the monologues or something. Um, and we had an, an, an ad that was very black and white and very uh, graphically suggestive with, with very provocative words on it. And um, people in the neighborhood were upset because there was a billboard of it outside. The, the New Yorker said, you know, turned white when we gave them the ad. I said, do you have a problem with the word vagina? And they said, no, we have no problem with, with the word vagina. We have a problem with the word vagina in 72-point type. Um, but uh, and eventually we put it on billboards and but it was always amazing actually that the places that you think are the most conservative or the most liberal are not necessarily so that we couldn't run our radio commercial in New Orleans or in New York City and yet in Salt Lake City we had a two week run that we sold out every ticket before we got there so you know I I, I think some you know some communities are are, are hungry for this, but in terms of, of the controversy, yes, there was a series. the The advertising was was provocative. The Times wouldn't even let me run certain ads, so we ran them elsewhere. And all these stars were doing it, which was getting a lot of attention. And then, of course, you know, the the tipping point happened with um, the mayor's wife, which um, was was both fun and terrifying. And uh, I felt speaking well, of Giuliani's wife, yes, and, uh, Don, Donna, Donna Hanover. Hanover, and yeah. I, 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 I felt. Um, I was in way over my head when Maureen Dowd called me and was on the phone with me for an hour to write a, an op-ed piece that was basically, you know, truth is stranger than, than fiction. You couldn't make this up that Rudy Giuliani's wife is doing a show by this woman, Eve Ensler, who's Hillary Clinton's biggest supporter, and Rudy is running uh, a campaign against Hillary for Senate at the time, saying that he's more, you know, moral and high-minded than, than, than the Clintons, when in fact his wife is, you know, on stage. And I, I only did it because I thought it would get us some local press, was, to say the least, <laughs> but it got international press. And, you know, it was also a way for me... When Giuliani did um, this whole Brooklyn Museum situation when he threatened to cut funding for the museum because he didn't like a piece of art, uh, which is, of course, censorship, um, uh, and the the artistic community in, in the city was so frightened by him that no one said anything. And I thought, well, you know, this was an opportunity to not only get a little press, but to say, oh, you think that's obscene? Oh, we'll have your wife, you know, scream cunt on the stage for an hour and a half and then we'll see what what obscene is. And he was 
he was infuriated. I, I mean, he went really crazy. And within a couple of weeks of her announcement, had announcement that she was going to do the show, had had basically told the press before he told his wife that um, he was uh, having an affair, in fact, himself, and was part of the whole series that led series of events that led to his leaving the race. <laughs> Hillary called Eve to thank her. <laughs> <laughs> well, how do we segue from the vagina there you monologues go. now? <laughs> Top to, that. To Man of La Mancha, which you had seen when you were five years old, yeah. and here you were producing it on yes. Broadway. How, how, did, how did you become the producer? Was that something that you decided, I just want to do it? Or I, I or? did. It was, it, was after, um, it was after 9-11, and it felt like a show about rising above circumstance and having your imagination about the power of imagination I think and and it also was an opportunity when Brian Stokes Mitchell said that he wanted to play this role well you know there was no one else who could sing that and, and play that role other than, than he so uh, it seemed like something I, I couldn't say no to La Mancha was a show that had been revived many times mm-hmm. over the years mm-hmm. and for a number of those years even with Richard Kiley and my understanding is that all of those major revivals were essentially the original production. They were all the original production. They were all produced by Mitch Lee, who was the composer. Uh, and so how we got to do it without Mitch producing it and to do a new production. But Dale Wasserman and even Mitch wanted to see a new production. And so um, Jonathan Kent, who had run the Almeida Theater in uh, London for years, uh, agreed to direct it. And, and it was a radically different production, a very different uh Set design, for example, and um, and controversial, and you know it was it was polarizing. Um, but uh, what about it? Polarized people. I think that the design. Everyone loved the you know the horse heads and you know the um, the, the, the 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 poor theater sort of staging uh, from the sixties, and and I I loved it too. But the only way that I was interested in doing this as a revival, as with Anne Frank, is to say, well, what what can we bring to it? Or else, you know, what does that have? Why why you can't top the original production with imitations of it? Do something different. Well, other than staging, how about the book? Was that changed? No, that wasn't. I mean, no, that 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 pretty much. So un- unlike Anne Frank, where you radically changed the book, this one is. Well, Anne Frank, basically... we changed the book not for the sake of changing no. it or to make it. We didn't change it to make it a better piece of drama. It was a very good piece of drama. We changed the Anne Frank to make it historically accurate and emotionally mm-hmm. accurate. Um, you know, La Mancha works as a piece of writing. It just we wanted to see if there was a way to to change it as a piece of staging. In doing any revival, for you, is it always about doing it in a totally new way? Well, I have to tell you, I I'm. With the success of Wicked, the gift that that's given me is that I'm not going to do another revival. I will do – play revivals are different because, you know, very often with a play, it's not necessarily the original production that created the success of the play. It was the play that made the success of the play. And uh, many of them were turned into films. And so, you know, it's it's – there's much more flexibility and not the memories of – of a long-running original production. Really, a, a new production of Fiddler on the Roof, a completely new West Side Story, which they're not doing. They're keeping, you know, a lot of it the same. And if you can't bring... If you can't top what made something run for six years 
originally and made it legendary, then then why do it? Do something new. And so, yeah, I'll I'll do revivals of plays as short runs, perhaps. But um, but no, I'm I'm not going to do that again. And it wasn't that it was a bad experience. I really was proud of it, and I'm glad I did it. And I don't want to do it again. The scale of Wicked, which we've already spent some time talking about, obviously is an enormous Broadway musical. So it is interesting that your next musical was a fairly intimate one. Yeah. And they were both in the same building. One was upstairs, one was downstairs, Spelling Bee. And I just, I loved when I would go to visit the theaters and I would be in, you know, one theater that was enormous with a lot of people and so many stagehands and musicians. And, and you go downstairs and every everyone in the entire company, that's how small it was, was in the green room having a snack. Spelling Bee, <laughs> though, didn't spring to life in no. Circle in the Square. It actually started up at Barrington Stage. Yes. Bill Finn had done a workshop uh, uh, up there. Uh, in the winter with a bunch of actors just like up in, in, the, in the snow and then called and said, um, so I'm doing a musical about a spelling bee. And I said, yes. I didn't even read it because I just said Bill Finn spelling bee. That just sounds really funny. And um, and so I, I, I gave the money to do it a full run up at Barrington Stage Company in exchange for the rights to bring it in. And, um, and then it was clear... Uh, up at Barrington in the Berkshires that that it it still, you know, Bill would say that it needed 5% changes. Uh, James Lapine said it needed 50%. It was probably about 25% different by the time it, it opened at second stage. And we decided to not rush it right in to, to Broadway, even though it had gotten, you know, uh, wonderful reviews in Western Massachusetts um, because uh, we just wanted to work on it and see what it would be and, and let the press and the audiences discover it for themselves. And so we um, had offers from a couple of, of the nonprofit theaters to do it and, and we chose Second Stage not only because of Carol Rothman's passion for the piece, she's the artistic director, but also the physical configuration of the of the auditorium was so right for that material. So we kept, you know, rewriting and changing. And James Lapine, who had had a 25-year collaboration with Bill Finn, was the perfect person not only to stage it, but to encourage Rachel Schenken, the book writer who won a Tony, and Bill to keep working. You know, he knew how to get them, specifically Bill, to uh, to keep working. Of course, when you transfer then to Broadway, the Circle and Square is kind of the same feel with yeah. the thrust stage, kind of like sitting in a, in a gymnasium. At, well, what was important about it wasn't, you know, I mean, it was proscenium at, at second stage and then thrust at Circle and the Square. And then right. when we started the tour, everyone said, how will you do this on a proscenium? I said, well, that's how it started, we actually. <laughs> but, but what was important about it in both of its New York uh, incarnations, we couldn't have this elsewhere, was the the looking down at the actors, which makes it easier for you to imagine adults being children, which is, you know, you're, 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 they look smaller. If you're looking up at them, then, you know, they look like hmm. adults. Interesting. So it actually was sort of conscious. <laughs> How much of Spelling Bee changed from night to night? There were times where it seemed oh. very improvisational. And how did you keep control so it didn't go over the top? Well... Uh, sometimes it did go over the top, but but James, th- there were you know the the three things that everyone always says that you should never do in the theater. One is improvisation, the other is uh, adults playing children, and the third is um, audience participation. So we had all three, of course. Uh, <laughs> but James really created a structure, especially with the audience volunteers, 
to not let them take control of the show, which, you know, can happen. It happened a couple of times, but, you know, they, they were in certain slots and you pick them at this point and you ask them this. And, you know, it was very structured. It looked looser than it was. And yet, you know, that was the exciting thing, not only for the audiences, but for the actors themselves. They, When do you ever get a chance to really have a different show every night? I mean, we say it, and it is true, of course, that the audience makes each night different, but not like this. This really makes each night when different. When the audience participates. When they're participating, does. and then their current events rants during the show of the of one of the characters. and I mean, it really does change. Then you would occasionally do an adult night. Yes. <laughs> what was the purpose of that? To get attention for it or to have well, fun? Or, we had, we, or the, the first one was just everyone saying, hey, wouldn't it be funny if these were things that we said in rehearsal that, we, I mean, we we're like, we could never say this. And then, well, why not? And then everyone liked it. And so we did them in New York, in Chicago, and in San Francisco where we had other productions. You mentioned the track from Berkshire Theater Festival, the second stage, and that you became involved really up up at, uh, um, I'm sorry, not Berkshire Theater Festival, Barrington Stage. And um, and you also were involved in Next to Normal at mm-hmm. Second Stage. Mm-hmm. What is the value for you of being involved in a show in a not-for-profit setting? Um, and how do you involve yourself at those theaters? Well, it's, it's it has a specific relationship. I mean, I did a show called uh, Fully Committed also, uh, at the Vineyard y- years ago, and I had been developing that for three years, and then four different theaters said we'd like to do it. Uh, we picked the Vineyard, and so you know, the, the when it's when it's something that you bring to them, then you know you're going to be involved, and you have to pick your partners. In the case of a nonprofit partner, as carefully as you'd pick your partners. On on a commercial show, either your your co-producers or your writers, you, you know, you have to be very careful. And Carol Rothman and I had such a wonderful experience on Spelling Bee together that we we thought we'd do this again. I had seen uh, uh, Dex Normal in an earlier version at the uh, Nymph Festival and then sent Carol down uh, uh, the next week and said, you know, we really ought to do this. We had worked on it by the time it, it just opened this past winter for two and a half years. Um and we really did everything together. We we would actually meet and say what should what changes do we need, and then we together go to uh, Michael Greif, the director, and to the author. So so it's beneficial because you know I I never put my name on any of these nonprofit um, uh, shows that I do. It's a way of developing it without the expectation of of a commercial run. And seeing what it is, and um, you know, you put your name on it, then already it says, "Well, then you know, commercial producers might move it." We just want to see. We just want to, you know, see it without without the the poison of 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 unreasonable expectations. So, with next to normal, which had its run at second stage, there's a production plan this year down at Arena Stage uh-huh. in Washington. Are you still involved, yes. and do you still have plans for the show beyond these not-for-profit venues? I do. You know, I, I would. I we want. We just wanted to keep working on it. We love the show. Um, obviously, Carol's not going to get to keep working on it. We're going to do it with um, Molly Smith down at Arena, um, but with the same director and designers and almost all the same actors. Brian Darcy James, um, of course, is doing uh, playing Shrek, uh, so he can't. Um, but. Uh, 
we just either we wanted to keep working on it and finish our work because you know it's a new musical not based on anything else so we had no no template we just had to you know make stuff up as we went along and we didn't finish and in fact two of the things that a, a lot of uh, critics pointed out that needed to change were already on the pl- well one of them like literally went out the next week after we kept working even at second stage after the opening and yes, that was one of the things that needed to change, and and it did, and it's better. And what we, changed for those who who know uh, the we, show? Oh, we we cut um, the uh, Costco song, uh-huh. uh, and we're changing the ending of the first act. And I mean, there are new songs, there are there are reworkings of things. We may try it as w- one act instead of two. We don't know how that'll work. Um, but we just we wanted to keep working on it. At the very least, we'll have finished our work, everyone's work, and send it off into the world and. Let it be done. And if it gets especially uh, exciting notices down in Washington, maybe we'll try to come back to New York. This sort of, you know, uh, journey hasn't quite been ever done before. So we'll see. Several of your shows have gained a lot of press either because of controversy or because simply it's such a huge success like Wicked. One that attracted a lot of press was because of its star, <laughs> yes. Julia Roberts. Yes. Uh, it was Three Days of Rain. Yes. You cast a fabulously gorgeous movie star to be in a Broadway I, show. I, I, I wish we had cast her. Um, she cast us. <laughs> really? She, uh, she, she and Joe Mantello um, were talking about what they'd like to do together, and they came up with this uh, play, and she actually knew Mark Platt from her years in the movies, and you know Joe uh, knew Mark as well, and, and me, and said, would you guys like to do this? And we said, well, of course. Um, it's a play that I had loved when I saw it at Manhattan Theater Club, and the opportunity to you know work with Joe again, Mark again, and um, and, and and Julia um, was really exciting. And you know it's funny because uh, obviously it was financially uh, successful. It was a twelve week run. We recouped in four and a half weeks, so that was nice. And it wasn't a lot of risk. So all those that part of the business was just gone. And all we had was you know the actual working on the show, despite what. The press thought we all had a wonderful time with each other. You know, there were things about the production that I don't think, you know, uh, served uh, the play or or, or or Julia well. I think I think the set was a little big and overwhelming, and um, that didn't help. But um, but I, I I would I would do it again. I, I know she had a wonderful experience. Joe had a wonderful experience. We just had a nice time and and. You know, I do believe there were audiences that came in to see Julia that wouldn't have otherwise seen a Broadway play, and they may have come out, a few of them saying, oh, that was boring, I never want to see a play again, or they may say, that was exciting, I, I, I want what, what's next? What's the next play? And if she could bring new people to, to serious drama on Broadway, then absolutely. Do you think she'll do theater again? I do. I do. She had a great time. I, 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 I mean, she said to me, and to all of us, actually, to Joe, to Mark, and she's even mentioned it to Joe again in the last two years. I, I saw her, I guess about a year ago. Yes, she absolutely would. I mean, you know, now she has, she's going to go make some movies. She took a little time off. She had another child. So, um, yeah, I do think she will again. Let me ask you as we wrap up, as, as a producer, your view of Max Bialystok's famous advice to Leo Bloom, never put your own money in the show. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you do put your own money in the show. I have I have sometimes, I wish I had put on, in Wicked and Vagina Monologues m- more money. Mm-hmm. Uh, vagina Monologues, I didn't, and I wish I had. 
Um, but wicked, you know, tiny bit. But, um, you know, three days of rain I got to. <laughs> so that was good. So, no, sometimes it, 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 it does work to put your own money in the show. Obviously, it has worked out very well for you, David. Thanks so much for being with us today on Thank Downstage you. Center. Thank you. Thanks, David. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten for Downstage Center. That is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.